It's a snowy day in New York City, and 31-year-old Yancey Strickler is on his way to what could be the most important series of meetings in his life. The year is 2009, and Yancey and his friends Perry Chen and Charles Adler have come up with a simple, but they think powerful idea. They want to use the internet to connect artists, filmmakers, musicians, and inventors with regular people who are willing to put up cash to back their projects. They spent the last four years developing and honing their business plan. They've got tons of enthusiasm. What they don't have is money. So today they're making their pitch to venture capital firms. Their palms are sweaty and their nerves are raw as they enter a plush suite of offices. They're ushered into a conference room that's bigger than their apartments. They present their idea, summoning the passion that has animated them all these years. And the venture capitalist reaction is, huh? Why would anyone give money to a total stranger? But they don't give up. They make their pitch at another firm and another. And they keep getting shown the door. Until finally, somebody gets it. And at 4.30 p.m. on April 28, 2009, a company called Kickstarter launches with a project called Drawing for Dollars. An artist named Dark Pony offers to make a sketch for the highest bidder. Three days later, the winning bid comes in, a whopping 35 bucks. A few weeks after that, a singer-songwriter named Allison Weiss posts a video on Kickstarter to promote her upcoming album. Dear Internet, I need your help. I'm trying to make a CD. Hello, Internet. My name is Allison Weiss. You may know me from the... The video is charming and personal, and it attracts a lot of attention. Allison even offers prizes, like she'll come to your house and play a concert. 205 backers pledge over $7,000 to help fund her EP. More projects get funded. The momentum builds, and within just a few months, Time Magazine names Kickstarter one of the inventions of the year. Musicians, filmmakers, and artists and inventors and creators of every stripe are seeing their passion projects become reality. Kickstarter continues to grow, spawning competitors and raising billions of dollars from millions of backers to fund hundreds of thousands of projects. Eight years after the launch, Yancey Strickler steps down as CEO, but he keeps searching for new ideas. One warm fall day, he's strolling down a Manhattan sidewalk with his wife and son, and he passes a newsstand and a headline catches his eye. It's from a newspaper called The China Daily, and the headline is about China's plans for the year 2050. Yancey stops in his tracks. What are his plans for the future? What's America's plan? 2050 is just 30 years away. Will climate change have destroyed the planet? Will incomes have grown even more unequal? Will so many people still be hungry or homeless? Is there another path we can take? Soon he's obsessed. He begins reading and researching and writing. He thinks about the values that made Kickstarter successful. The company proved that people aren't just motivated by money, that sometimes they prioritize other values over profit. But what are those other values? And can we harness them in a way that will really make a difference? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. 
Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club, along with the authors Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant, to connect people to some of the boldest new thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, kickstarting the future. While running Kickstarter, Yancey Strickler saw firsthand how a simple idea can change the world. The fundraising platform has allowed countless artists and inventors to turn their dreams into reality, and we're all the better for it. But now he's taken on an even more ambitious challenge to chart a course to a fairer, more generous future. That's what he sets out to do in his new book, This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world. In it, he argues that a lot of it comes down to how we think about money, both in our society and in our lives. Money has infiltrated our consciousness so deeply that it can drive almost every decision we make. He says that is a very big problem, but it's a problem that we have the power to solve. We talked in front of a live breakfast audience at Betaworks Studios in the Meatpacking District in New York City. So, Yancey, thank you for coming on the Next Big Idea podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So this is not just a book. It's a manifesto. It, it says so in the subtitle. What is your core thesis, and why does it call for a manifesto? Yeah, let's talk about the word manifesto. I mean, I had this swallow hard before putting that in the title. I mean, to do that in 2019, you're like, asshole, you know, immediately. But, uh, you know, the book is not a, it's not an airtight legal argument. There's a lot of data, there's a lot of ideas, but it's ultimately uh, making the case for a point of view based on my personal experience and just some things that I, I see in the world. You know, I want someone reading this book to walk away thinking that the world is not as solid as they thought and to think that there's a lot more to the picture that we've been ignoring and, you know, to feel that, to feel that in your body. So I, I write about how our belief that the correct choice in every decision is whichever option makes the most money how that's become the default setting that just operates the world. And I call this idea of financial maximization, and it's something that is so deeply ingrained, we don't think about it, that it hasn't always been that way. And that this is something that changed during the lifetimes of people alive now. 1970, I think, was the year the world began to change how it operated according to this principle. So, you know, once you start thinking about things from that way, uh, to me it becomes obvious that how we orient government, how we orient education, healthcare, all these things are based on this same principle. And behind it is the belief that if we just amass a big enough capital base, we can just solve every problem, right? And this has sort of been the bet of the last 50 years, but we're in the fifth straight decade of that failing to achieve its goal. It keeps not working. For a half a century, it has not worked, but yet we, we think it's natural. We think it's how it has to be. And there have been pretty dramatic consequences in these last 30, 40 years from this kind of shift in priorities. Yeah. What, what to you are some of the most sort of important and devastating impacts of this, of this shift? You know, certainly a big one has just been income distribution and all the secondary effects it's had. So from 1948 to 1973, the so-called golden age of capitalism, worker pay rose 90 plus percent. 
the lowest paid people got bigger raises than the highest paid people. And then in 1973, that stopped. The workers kept producing more value than ever. They stopped getting paid like they were. Since 1973, the average American worker compensation has gone up 9%. Over those same years, executive compensation has increased 1,000%. The metaphor that I use to illustrate this in the book, when I think about this dynamic, the image that comes to mind is the mullet. The mullet, I trust you all remember, it's the peak of 80s hair technology. Uh, it's you know, business in front, party in the back. You got everything you need. And so today we're living in a mullet economy where for 90% of people, for workers, it is business in front with wage freezes, layoffs, more job insecurity than we've had in decades. And then for the top one to 10%, it is a party in the back with buybacks, a thousand percent increase in compensation. And this, this is, you know, these things are related. This happens by workers not getting raises, by people getting laid off, that money being redistributed to the top one to 10% instead. And this is the income gap. It is, it is intentional, it is strategic, and it is based on the thought that if we just grow as much money as possible, again, it will solve every problem. Right now, the United States is the most profitable nation and the most profitable time in human history, and 43% of Americans can't afford their bills every month. And it's because while pay has stayed flat, the cost of healthcare, education, everything else has skyrocketed because it's being run according to principles of financial maximization. So we're getting squeezed. And like college students are some of the worst of all. The, the cost of college has increased 19 times since 1970. Pay has increased 10%. So you're left with these huge debts because you're having to take on all this debt to get the right to get that job, after which you're trapped, you're trapped by the, the loans you took out. Like half of student debts are in delinquency or forbearance today. And you talk about hidden defaults, mm -hmm. right? What part do hidden defaults have in this narrative? The way I introduced the idea in the book is if you picture your commute to work, for most people who live in a residential area and they commute to a commercial area, on the right-hand side of the street, they will see coffee shops and banks and gas stations, things that people tend to need before work. And on your commute home from a commercial area back to a residential area, on the right-hand side of the road, you will see restaurants, grocery stores, and shopping malls, things people tend to do after work. And this is intentional. This is designed by retail planners using something called the no left turn rule, because it's way more difficult to turn left than right. You have to wait for traffic. So this is an example of a hidden default, the way our choices are being made for us without being aware of it. And this is kind of helpful, right? Like it's annoying if you need gas and you're like, I have to wait at this left turn signal forever. So it's not bad on its own, but to me it's an example of the ways that our decisions are made for us without fully being aware of it. And so to me, financial maximization, and also I'd say our belief in individualism, are probably the greatest hidden defaults of today. Just these restrictions that we operate within that we struggle to see. I think we can feel them in our hearts and our souls at certain moments in time, but they're hard to touch and get a hold of. But they have a tremendous impact. Is there a place for the drive to earn and to make money? Is that, how, yeah. how, how, do, you, how do you view that? Yeah, this is not meant to be a, a, an anti-money argument at all. I mean, without financial security, which I think should be the goal, financial security, without financial security, the lifespans of organizations and people decline, which is bad. But I think there's a saturation point that we meet. There's a, a famous study by Daniel Kahneman 10 years ago looking at people's happiness levels and income levels and basically found that there is a direct correlation between happiness and income up until $75,000 a year. This was in 2010. Maybe it's a little higher now. But once someone made $75,000 a year, no matter how much more money they made, their happiness didn't increase that much. 
And to me, this suggests that money after that point is like the diminishing returns of you have enough. And so I think people trying to attain financial security or designing their lives around financial security is like a thousand percent right. That is not the problem. The problem is when people reach that point and then don't become aware of how their value system should shift. Don't be aware of the other sorts of things that they should grow. And also there's a lot of research showing that intrinsic motivation, mm. that purpose-driven goals make people much happier and more gratified than extrinsic motivations, which would be profit goals. Like the, the world is telling us we should chase profit. Our intrinsic desires are to chase purpose. Yeah. The latter leads to much more fulfillment. Yeah. So they're able to prove over and over that the well-being and happiness of people who are motivated by purpose-oriented goals produces far better returns than profit-oriented goals. But you know, we live in an age where profit-oriented goals, external validation-oriented goals are seen as rational, and all other goals are kind of emotional. So I want to address up front what I think is probably the biggest single form of resistance you're likely to encounter to this book, which is the view that, oh, well, sure, we're too materialistic, we should be less selfish, but you know, this is the water we're swimming in. The water's not going to change. This is naive. It's a case of wishful thinking. I sometimes think of in New York City, you're walking around and there's a little button in the crosswalk. It says to cross, push the button. Most of us assume that the button's not going to do anything right, at all. Right. It's, it's a little, it's a, it's a little <laughs> hope placebo that we're invited totally, to push. But totally. I push it anyway. Are you just pushing on the hope button? Possibly. Po I mean, certainly, <laughs> certainly. Like the fact that I might just be a gigantic fool occurs to me all the time. <laughs> and certainly in writing this book, it was like, it weighed on me. But I grew up in Southwest Virginia on a farm and I, you know, and I, I was taught that the world is orderly and history has meaning and things work the way they're supposed to work and we can count on that. And the moment when that view changed for me was starting Kickstarter, leaving it at not knowing what it's gonna do. And then it became real solely because other human beings believed in that idea. My initial experience of that was I felt terrified. It maybe took a year, but I, I eventually became excited by it because I just thought, well, shit, that means like nothing is as solid as we think. Really, you know, we're all waking up and believing in the status quo because we're not even aware. We think the status quo is not even just how things are. It's how things are supposed to be. It's how things have to be. And if that's not true, then what is there? So that realization eventually came to feel like almost a superpower. Like I could just see this other way that things operated and one of my motivations of the book was wanting to like instill that, not just that idea, but that feeling, that body sense of that. Because to me, it's still really powerful. So yes, I might be a naive fool, but our capacity to evolve, I think we underrate more than almost anything. We so severely underrate it, and for all kinds of good reasons. I mean, life is hard, like thinking beyond today can be difficult, yep. like all sorts of things. But if we have a plan, Yep. If we have a plan, the potential is unlimited. And like if I think about me growing up in Southwest Virginia, believing the world would just work the way it would, like this is the challenge of my generation, which is that we believed our institutions would just hold naturally. We didn't pay attention to them. Instead of helping to support the institutions that had created our own success, it's like, no, let's make startups. Let's audition for MTV Real World. Let's be the most me I can be. And just the world will keep flourishing. But the past 10 years have showed us that that is not true. Yeah. It's yeah. not gonna work that way. So I think that that, it's a scary thought, it's a powerful thought, and you know, one of the ways the book is really pitched and presented is to 
Generation Z, millennial generation, who will be fully empowered by 2050. And if we look at like Greta Thunberg, she's taking the baton already. If they have a plan for where we should be, we can go there. Yeah. We can go there. But the idea that we should iterate on where we are now or we should just continue with our current trajectory, that is death. I think that actually, to the skeptics, the Kickstarter story itself is really one of the great examples of how much behavior can change. Because when you were sitting there, you know, it took four years, right, between Kickstarter launched in May of 2009. You guys spent, as I have read, four years working to build it, trying to get the traction, trying trying to get the resources to make, yeah. make this come to fruition. And at that time, there were undoubtedly many people who said, wait a second, you are asking people with no financial upside yeah. to back projects just because they want to see them flourish and maybe they get a t-shirt. Yeah. You don't understand human nature. Yeah. Right? It was probably a response that you heard at that time. Yeah, no, we were cute. You're cute. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. That's a nice idea. You know, just a little pat on the head, but not, not taken seriously. So let's take a moment to appreciate the scale of Kickstarter's achievements. And this has to, if you can put yourself back to, you know, 2007, yeah. Yancey, yeah. you know, struggling away with your day job, trying to see if it might be possible to make this a reality. This would be extraordinary for the younger Yancey to, to hear this. In its first 10 years, 16 million people have backed 450,000 projects with $4 billion of pledges. This has made possible Oscar-winning movies, new fields of technology, art that hangs on the wall of MoMA. So it's to the extent that some might say, well, this plan for a more generous world is Pollyanna-ish. Yeah. You could reasonably reply, well, maybe so, but it's worked so far. Yeah, I mean, but a Pollyanna-ish, you know, big, hairy, audacious goals, like you need these things. You need these things. I think, sure, I mean, incrementalism is, is incredibly important and is like the least violent way for change to occur. But you have to increment yourself towards somewhere. You, you need a destination. So I feel like, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I feel like even if, even if the grandest hopes of this fall short, I, I feel like painting that picture has an enormous influence. These stories we tell it's just, yeah, they, they affect us in all kinds of ways. So we're living in a world where corporate profits trump human values, where the richest country in the world is seeing the biggest disparity of income, and more and more people are struggling just to get by. But how did we get here? Is it the natural course of capitalism or something more deliberate? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The 18th century economist and philosopher Adam Smith is widely credited as the father of free market capitalism. He posited the idea that individual acts of selfishness can serve the common good. The owner of a butcher shop is motivated to make a profit, but if he's successful, he'll hire people to work in his shop and the economy will be stronger. 
But according to Yancey Strickler, it was another economist nearly 200 years later who gave us the theory we live under today. His name was Milton Friedman. And in an essay published in the New York Times in 1970, he declared that corporations have only one purpose, and that's to make a profit. The U.S. was mired in Vietnam. Vietnamese people were losing their lives. Uh, American soldiers were losing their lives. Their families were sacrificing. It was like a really challenging time. And then a new conversation developed that said, what responsibility does corporate America have to the greater good? Everyone else is sacrificing. Should companies be sacrificing too? And this is what Friedman's essay is responding to. And in his essay, he says, the idea that businesses have social responsibility, a phrase he puts in skeptical quote marks 27 times in the essay, the idea that businesses have any social responsibility is ridiculous. Only people can have responsibilities. Businesses cannot have responsibilities. And furthermore, businesses already create a social benefit, which is simply making as much money for shareholders as possible. So the idea of shareholder value maximization really began in that moment. And the way the economy operated began to change. There's a huge shift in worker pay that happened three years later in 1973. But my favorite way that we can track how the attitude of America changed as a result of this is in the 1960s, UCLA started running an annual survey of incoming college freshmen all across the United States. It was like millions of kids would take this every year, 18, 19-year-olds, all kinds of things about their backgrounds. And one question asked about their goals in life. And it would list like 10 to 15 different goals, being good at your job, raising a family, et cetera, et cetera. And it would ask them to rate them on a four-point scale from not at all essential to essential. There's one of these that involves money, being very well off financially, being rich. And in 1970, it was 36% of incoming college freshmen called being rich important or essential, 36%. The number one answer that year was to develop a meaningful philosophy on life, which 86% of college students said yeah. was <laughs> essential or very important. The last year this study was released, 2017, the number one answer was to be rich. 82% of college students, incoming college students, saying being rich was essential. It's about 40% who say having a meaningful philosophy on life is essential. The goal of being rich went from like 13th to number one. It first reached number one in 1989, which was the year the kids growing up in 1970 and 1971 entered college. Every year since 1989, it has been number one. It's the biggest change of any of those goals over that same time frame. But you know, in 1970, 86% of kids say, I want to find a philosophy on life. Now that same number know what their philosophy on life is, it's to be rich. And we could just see incrementally how this changed. But this is not selfishness. I don't think this is selfishness. I think this is people recognizing properly what the pains are of being not rich. They see it in their parents. They know what the student loan debt is weighing on them. They're thinking intelligently about, I don't want to be stuck like the 43% of us are. And so everyone has this same idea that they're working towards. So the notion that this has always been here is just not true. It's not true. And even how capitalism was run in the 1950s and 60s was dramatically different. Because at that point, capitalism was competing with communism to be what is the best form of social structure in the world. And their competition was being fought out on the battlefield of which system can produce the biggest middle class, which system can provide for the most amount of people at the same time. And so the force of competition, which capitalism celebrates, helped make capitalism so responsive and so performant. Companies retrained workers, they invested in things. The government was focused on creating the biggest middle class possible. It produced amazing prosperity. 
Now the goal is just to make as big a pile of money for yourself as possible. So our attitudes changed. Our attitudes changed. We can look backwards. We can see how this evolution happened. And so I, I believe that evolution can continue and that we can move into new forms of value as well. I was really struck by that, those survey results in the book, because we do have this assumption that it, it is easy to say, oh, it's always been this way, but there's just been a radical shift in attitudes in the last 30, 40 years. And people talk about the zeitgeist, you know, yeah. which literally is the spirit of the times. Yeah. And zeitgeists meaningfully change. I didn't write about this in the book, but the next zeitgeist is showing up in this same survey. About 10 years ago, they added a new choice to the survey, which was called being a values entrepreneur. And you know, your goal is to evolve the values of society. When that first appeared, it was like 10% of students said that. Now it's like 45% say that's like an essential goal for them. So that might be where things shift. That, that could be the early signs of where we're going. So let's talk about the cascading effect that we had Milton Friedman pronounce the social responsibility of a business is profit in yeah. 1970. Yeah. There's a chain reaction of self-interested behavior. You have the corporate raiders. People are increasing profits, slashing uh, you know, uh, uh, massive layoffs, cutting pensions, yes. cutting benefits. Then we have changes in, in tax and real estate laws that drive this massive expansion of suburbia. Yep. I want to speak a little bit to, to what happened in those next few decades. One thing I write about is the birth of the shopping mall and uh, how the story we're told about the shopping malls, that it's like white flight to the suburbs, development of highways, you know, X, Y, Z, and those are all big factors. But the biggest factor we don't know about was in 1954, there was a change to the tax law in America, which was called accelerated depreciation. And this allowed the development of new businesses to basically write off all of their losses within the first seven years of a new building being put up. And as an economist for the Federal Reserve, analyzing this bill at the time said, this bill creates a permanent postponement of taxes because what it allowed wealthy people to do is to put money into building new developments and they immediately take their money out and put it into something else and they would just use that to write off all the other money that they've made. And so, so it ends up that the growth of malls and shopping centers was largely a tax shelter. Within 10 years of this law becoming announced, it was 13,000 malls were built around America. There was a front page story of the Wall Street Journal in 1961 called Profits and Losses, why putting money into hotels and strip malls is the best thing you can do with your money. And this just became a structure. It was intended to spark growth, American growth, which it did, but it also emptied out downtowns. It emptied out our you know, communal ties. It spread us out and made us a, more of a car culture. All these sorts of things happened. And at the heart, it was like a, an attempt to you know, create a new economic incentive. I love this observation that if a corporation were an individual, a typical old school corporation, we would describe them as a psychopath, yeah. right? Caring nothing about others whatsoever. Yeah. But do companies themselves benefit from financial maximization? The goal of any company that is in a market power position now is to maintain the status quo. As long as nothing changes, we're good. We're good. This, is, I think, is the reason why companies spend so much of their money trying to lower tax rates and also defunding government R&D, government programs, because these are like, you know, the internet was a government investment starting in the 1960s. Same with most of our pharmaceuticals. Almost all came from public government grants into basic science, and they produced the goods that companies are now financially exploiting now. So it seems weird that these same companies would be trying to restrict the ability for future research to happen, except that the growth of new ideas is the only existential threat they face. 
As long as everything stays the same, whoever the market leaders are now, they have nothing to worry about. All of their intentions are built around maintaining that level of power. So we are defunding investments into the future, the same ones that created the world we live in now, all in a bid to maintain the current power structure. And it's been powerful. I mean, that's been the last three decades of kind of governmental policy is just taking a wrecking ball to the institutions that produce the world that we live in now. You write about how the GDP, the gross domestic product, we think of as the most common metric to measure the health or success of certainly the economies of countries, if not the welfare of countries. What's wrong with the way we think about GDP? Yeah, I mean, GDP, uh, Simon Kuznets first proposed it in 1936, and when he did, he said, you know, this is going to give us a raw number of the size of economy, but it's not going to tell us anything about the actual health of the people, because what you do for money, we don't know. The other problem is that we don't look at how that money was spent. So $1,000 spent on a divorce attorney and $1,000 spent on a family vacation are both just $1,000 of GDP. So according to the mindset of GDP growth, the perfect citizen would be going through a divorce, having chemotherapy, drive an SUV, eat out every night. Like that's the ideal citizen. We know that's not true, but our systems like desire that kind of outcome. And also because we solely judge value through a financial lens, it means that the value that Google or Twitter or you know, any of those services provide is simply the ad units that they, that they sell. That's the only way we can measure in our current mindset the value that they create is through this weird approximation. And so, you know, I mean, GDP is not meant to measure all these things. And GDP is absolutely helpful because it's a universal metric, you know, measuring every economy on the earth. So I don't mean to like throw shade at GDP. It's simply to say that the values that exist in our world are already beyond its measurement system. It's already, we're failing to measure everything that's happening there. Our mindset so far has just been, well, if we can't measure it, it's not important. We'll ignore it. If we make more money, we'll solve that in some other way. But the idea of just accepting that as the reality, I think, is absurd. I think the idea should be to try to understand what's happening outside of that space. Aren't attitudes beginning to shift? Like, for instance, in, I think in 2011, the United Nations started uh, measuring happiness in, in all countries and started encouraging countries to report on happiness and, and have happiness indexes as a, as a measure of success. Right? Corporations are starting to do more to try to assign value yeah. to these externalities, to the way they're impacting the world. We recently had 181 CEOs you know, sign a statement saying that they, it was important to measure and, and act upon the, what all benefits stakeholders. Other, other stakeholders, all stakeholders. So do you, do you see the beginnings of a shift? I think smart companies recognize that there is like a market position in being the good ones, the good ones in your field. They also might recognize that the way you create meaning is balancing financial goals with non-financial goals. You have to have a non-financial purpose. That's what lets you hire good people. That's what makes you meaningful in the market. That's what makes people excited to go to work. And it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a strange thought, but it often occurs to me how amazing it is that in the corporate space, we have broadly agreed upon the rationality of values. I think companies are ready to make that step. And I think customers will demand it. I think employees will demand it. And I think eventually they'll come to realize it's in their best interest for a lot of different reasons. So I'm, I'm optimistic about the ability for, yeah, for companies to be a, a real part of driving this change. Your background is so interesting. You grew up, as you mentioned earlier, in Southwest Virginia. You were raised as an evangelical Christian. Yeah. You went to churches where people danced in aisles and spoke in tongues. Yeah. Do you think this influenced your outlook 
and your sense of sort of like what is possible and how the world should operate? Yeah, I mean, to have a deep understanding and an empathy and a, and a connection with a philosophy that guides many people in this world, I think is extremely helpful. Yeah, it's always struck me as ironic that the teachings of religions and the practices of people who espouse them are very often highly well, uncorrelated. Well, but listen, right? Yeah, Christianity got reshaped by financial maximization, just like everything else. Just like everything else. It's no better or worse than any other system that's gone through the same effect in the 80s and 90s, right? I mean, it's, it's the same story. So we've looked at where we are and how we got here. And we've laid out a vision for a better world. But how do we actually get there? According to Yancey Strickler, the solution is to think inside the box. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. If you're intrigued by this conversation with Yancey Strickler and would like to get a free copy of his book, This Could Be Our Future, join us at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast and use promo code FUTURE. We'll send you Yancey's book along with a curated selection of groundbreaking new nonfiction books, videos, and reading guides. It's all available at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast promo code FUTURE. Live music has been part of our culture since the dawn of time. We gather together to share the moment, to feel the vibrations of the music, and to applaud our favorite performers. It's a primal experience. If we can afford a ticket. The same technology that lets us buy tickets online allows scalpers to buy up blocks of tickets and resell them for many times their face value. In this video, guys, we'll look at five ways to get better at scalping. Scalping is another example of financial maximization. While it's easy money for the middleman, it drives a wedge between performers and their fans. But nobody knew what to do about it until someone smart and powerful decided to take matters into her own hands. And the Grammy goes to Adele! By 2015, Adele is one of the most successful pop singers in the world. She's won 10 Grammys and an Oscar and is about to go on tour to promote her latest album, 25. Her concerts sell out instantly. But for Adele, that's a problem. Because scalpers buy up huge blocks of tickets and her most loyal fans are priced out. Brokers can sometimes buy a thousand tickets a minute and then they resell them at very inflated prices. For example, Adele's six shows in New York City sold out in less than an hour. 
Adele can't stand this. She grew up in South London, raised by a single mom. Money was tight. And now the fans she feels closest to, people like her, can't afford to go to her concerts. So she partners with a startup called Songkick. Songkick uses an algorithm to scour social media and identify Adele's most loyal fans. Adele then sets aside 40% of her tickets and sends those fans a link to purchase them at face value. The plan works. Less than 2% of those tickets are resold, and now the fans who love her most get to see her live. For Yancey Strickler, there's a lesson to be learned here. So this brings us to the third act of this conversation, which is how can we do better? Yeah. And I love the story of Adele and how she goes about taking a novel approach to selling tickets to her concerts. Yeah, yeah. To me, this is an example of Adele optimizing and maximizing not for her own financial self-interest, but for a collective value of loyalty and fairness. And did it, yes, because she's like a good person who cares, but did it in a replicable, algorithmic, mathematical, you know, non-altruistic way. Like it's something that could happen again and has happened again. But to me, that suggests that our ability to make decisions based on new forms of value is like just a whole new frontier. Can we make that shift? Can we think about those higher values? Is that possible? You know, it's happening. We can feel it. It's happening. So let's talk about your solution yeah. uh, to these problems, which is bentoism. Yeah. Yeah, so I wrote a book that has the word manifesto in the title and introduces a new ism into the world in 2019. So uh, good luck to me. So uh, as I was thinking about this question of our true self-interest, kind of one of the core thoughts of the book was the idea that Adam Smith writes about of wealth of nations, of people operating according to their self-interest. Not only can society operate that way, but it's a preferable way for society to function. I thought that's true, but I think that our notion of self-interest is actually bigger than we think it is. And so what is the possibility of changing what we think of as our self-interest? One day I was doodling in my notebook and I drew a hockey stick graph where a slope of the line just goes up and to the right. Whatever it is you're trying to achieve is just growing so fast. The line looks awesome. This is what former CEOs do. They just doodle hockey stick graphs. Yeah, <laughs> got it, yeah. And, and, but I drew this and then I just had this thought of this x-axis on the bottom measuring time. It goes from now all the way into the future. It goes out far farther than we imagine. And the y-axis measuring our self-interest, it also keeps going because our self-interest grows. It goes from me to us. The difference of being a single person and having a family is enormous. The difference between being a solo entrepreneur and having employees is enormous. Our responsibilities increase. And so as I expanded this graph, I suddenly saw all this blank space that I'd never really thought about before. And I like drew it out into a two by two, sort of creating four different squares. And I thought, what did I just draw? What is this? And I just tried to write down a description of it. And I wrote down beyond near-term orientation. This is a way to see beyond our near-term orientation. And I looked at that and realized that it was an acronym for bento. And I thought, it's a bento box. It's a bento box. Because the beauty of the bento, bento comes from a Japanese word meaning convenience. And the, the bento has four compartments and a lid, which means that you can always have a variety of things. You're never gonna over-maximize onto one type of food. It's always a healthy mix of things. And also the bento honors a Japanese dieting philosophy called harahachibu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full, that way you're still hungry for tomorrow. So I thought, bentoism, 
Bentoism is a way to see beyond this near-term orientation, and we can think of as there being four distinct spaces of our self-interest. There's now me, what I want and need right now. This is where hockey stick graphs live. This is the space that the world today operates on. This is the part of us that's hungry, that needs security, that's looking for immediate gratification, which we all have. It is hugely important, hugely important. But there's also, in the bottom right, there is future me, thinking about the older, wiser version of ourselves, the one who made all the right decisions, who lived up to their commitments, who lived the obituary you wish you could have. There's also in the top left, there's now us, the people that we rely on and who rely on us, our families, our friends, our coworkers. And finally, in the top right corner, there's future us, our children and everybody else's children too. So our self-interest is not just this now me, it's future me, it's now us, it's future us. Every decision we make impacts all these spaces. All these spaces influence every choice we make, but today we're blind to three out of four of them. We see them as emotional, irrational, less real. And so the bento is meant to create a, a framework and a way of seeing that reminds us of the true spaces in which we operate. And I use it as a personal decision-making tool and I've used it to build my own values. But I also think of it as a value-finding tool. Because in the same way that financial wealth exists in the now-me space as like a rational value for measuring you know, what, what we want and need right now, I believe that there will be rational values that can be defined in each of those spaces. The future us value should be about sustainability, managing the climate at this point in time. Our now us value should be about social cohesiveness or fairness or community or our adherence to tradition. These are also ways that we create value. The future me values are about mastery and purpose, these bigger ideas we're working towards. So can we evolve in such a way that not only do we agree these spaces are rational, do we agree these spaces are in our self-interest, but also that we can begin the process of building out values and even metrics to make collective decisions on these spaces. Because right now, the reason why we struggle with loneliness or lack of social cohesion is because we can't perceive of that as being real. We don't know what we're working on together there. The reason why the climate crisis is totally alien and foreign to us is because we keep trying to solve it with now-me solutions. This is not a now-me problem. This is a future-us problem that's barreling down on us way faster than we know. And so to me... <laughs> Bentoism was meant to be a, a framework that expands what we think of as our self-interest and lays the groundwork for us to, I, I think, start making better choices. So what new knowledge could we learn or possess that would allow us to keep growing and evolving beyond where we are now? And to me, that came down to a new way of seeing self-interest and a new way of defining value. And this is a tool for thinking in a more long-term way about yes. our self-interest, which, which is arguably more effective self-interest from a longer time horizon. And if you think in longer time horizons, there's much more we can accomplish. Like, who, who was it who said, we overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in 10 years? One, one of my favorite things I read about the nature of change is that maybe some of you have read the, the Thomas Kuhn book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, right? And he talks about how there are moments in time where systems break down, the world stops making sense according to how we see it. The need emerges for a new paradigm, a new way to bring in the anomalies into a structure that they start to make sense again. Once a new paradigm occurs, there's this new phase that he calls normal science, which takes multiple decades. And this is just people doing the rote work of trying to test out this new theory, discovering where it's true and where it's false, determining its shape, determining its practicality, seeing how it affects all these other things. And so we begin with these new frameworks. And then on that, we have to build on with all these practical attempts to define it more clearly. And that, that is the true nature of progress. 
It's like new ideas that we then try to backfill and discover how they work and how they don't work. To me, I think of you know my ultimate success scenario for this book and the idea of Bentoism yeah, would be- 2050, 2050, where do we want to be? Yeah, would be, my, my idea would be that in at least a handful of minds, these ideas create a new paradigm of how we think about those things. And that I imagine creating an organization after this called the Bento Society that will be giving grants and working with organizations and trying to do the normal science of proving out this theory. I think that normal science is expanding our idea of rational self-interest. I think it's trying to lay the groundwork for new values, trying to measure things, you know, and that's work that will take decades. But a lot of the way the book is pitched is to the millennial and Z generation saying, hey, instead of signing up with the financially maximizing company and trying to help them increase their margins, instead jump on board this new frontier of defining the future of what value is. Because there's decades of work to be done here that will dramatically change how every one of us lives and operates. But it's about that normal science of really trying to prove it out. Like I, I make a lot of you know claims, I lay out some arguments, I believe in them, but I'm sure a lot of it's not, you know, we'll discover what's real and what's not real. But you start with the destination and then you try to, to backfill and try to understand what works and what doesn't and to make that real. You're building a bridge to somewhere. And so that's, yeah, that, that's my greatest hope. So in 2050, well, I hope that we still have a civilization. As a result of the climate crisis, I'm, I'm not laughing. I'm not laughing. Like genuinely, genuinely that, is, that is question number one. But yeah, I think it's that we would have a radical shift in how we think of self-interest and that the kinds of things we're talking about today are like so boring. <laughs> like everyone's just <laughs> like this, why, why are we even talking about this? Of course, of course. And yeah, I, I, if all of humanity shifted goals from financial you know, maximization, shifted it to reduction of CO2 in the atmosphere and shifted it to a new set of values, I am long on humanity. I will bet on us 100 times out of 100. Getting us all on the same page is, of course, the really hard part. Maybe even if two-thirds of humanity. Sure, <laughs> sure. Maybe two-thirds of company or B Corp that would, would do the trick. Well, thank you so much, Yancey. I look forward to, hopefully, also, I'm humble before the unknown, but I'd like to be here in 30 years and see the local meatpacking district Bento Society headquarters where I can go in and build out my Bento. Amen. Thank you, sir. If you enjoyed this episode and want to join the Next Big Idea Club, go to nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. If you enter promo code FUTURE, we'll send you a free copy of Yancey Strickler's new book, This Could Be Our Future, when you subscribe. A special thanks today to Yancey Strickler. His book, This Could Be Our Future, is available wherever books are sold. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode was written by Steve Chivers. Sound design was by Jake Gorski. Our associate producer is Caleb Bissinger. Series producers are Emma Cortland and Michael Kovnat. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.